Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pratameshi Amul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fall fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there, Take the story up there. What what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and um, Ahmed Massoud, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander, he was a uh, son of the famous Ahmad Shah Massoud. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley. Um, in our, It's, I think, north of Kabul, as far as I remember. And there was an attempt to put up resistance there, which didn't last for too long. You know, they weren't that well supported. They were support, surrounded from all sides. And um, after that, for the most part, the Taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, country. But what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense. They have formed a government, a state, they've appointed their leadership, but there's been quite a quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern, uh, administer and um, enforce laws, among other things. One of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took Kabul and took over Afghanistan has been um, an organization called ISK or Daesh K, which is, uh, it is basically an affiliate of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq that we know so well. And it's the local affiliate of uh, ISIS called ISIS Khorasan province or Vilayat Khorasan. And they have basically, um, they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government. But they've kind of used the chaos that 
came with um, the taking of Kabul and, you know, the Taliban trying to form a new state, new government to exert their control over the, most of the country. They've used that chaos to um, exercise terror, basically. They've had, they've had constant attacks on the Taliban, Taliban troops, Taliban police, and they've done constant... Um, terrorist attacks on civilian places they've attacked mosques they've attacked hospitals they've attacked um schools they've as recently as yesterday there was an uh not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on uh, gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshippers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um, form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern Afghanistan, mainly Nangarhar and Kunar province, and um, a third called Nuristan, where they have a somewhat lesser presence. And these are high mountainous provinces, you know, hard to get. So they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there and ever since they've constantly been attacking civilian sites they've been attacking taliban members and they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could and basically that's what's been going on there have been major attacks they've attacked um they've attacked shiite mosques they've attacked uh sikh religious sites they've attacked hospitals they were, i think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital if i'm not wrong they've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e holiday of eid and um basically they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible. If you uh, remember during the American pullout from Afghanistan or the fall of Kabul, there was a suicide attack at Kabul airport where uh, American servicemen died and, you know, 170 or so Afghans died, if I'm not wrong. And uh, this attack was also carried out by ISIS Khorasan. So basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the I, i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region now on the outside observers because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the west especially in american media when americans aren't involved people probably are wondering why are they fighting there's some important differences between ISIS-K and the Taliban, though. The Taliban, of course, came out of the Pashtun nationalism, the tribal people. They were the original, um, the Mujahideen, if you're old enough to go all the way back to the Soviet era. Uh, 
for lack of a better way of explaining it, ISIS-K sees them more locally and they see themselves as more the international branch. There's some other ideological differences, though. Why is it a shooting blood for you? You call it a turf war for our Western parlance. This is just going to be an internal thing, right? There's not going to be any detente here. There's not going to be a peace among them, right? Not likely. Because, well, for one, this is, I call it a turf war, because this conflict is not only ideological, but for some of them, it's personal. You see, ISIS Khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what uh, of the organization that is Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, which is basically the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, so two of the major leaders who formed ISIS-K, one of them was Hafiz Saeed Khan, who was a Pakistani from Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, and another one, uh, I can't remember his name, but was a pretty high uh, Taliban leader, Afghan Taliban leader. So this isn't just ideological, but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership. Along with this, there is, of course, the fact that um, they're basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience. They're say they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight. Along with that, this conflict also has its roots, uh, kind of, in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between Al Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State. The Islamic State broke away as a part of Al-Qaeda, and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide Islamist movement. So it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position. They're not going to have any form of detente because Islamic State claims itself to be a province. Uh, Islamic State in Khorasan claims to be a province of um, the global Islamic Caliphate they will have an Amir. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan also claims to have an Amir as their leader. You can't have two um, leaders in one place. And the, so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente, especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um, Islamic conservatism. The Taliban are Deobandis, which is an Islamic uh, revivalist movement, a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era India. And uh, it has its roots much closer to Pashtun ethnic um, nationalism and their ethnic code called Pakhtun Wali. While um, the Islamic State is Salafist, you know, they have their roots in the Middle East and they have a much more global outlook for one. And another thing is that um, the Islamic State is kind of a kind of an attraction for those Islamists in Afghanistan who are not Pashtuns, like Tajiks, Uzbeks. We can see this especially because an organization called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan uh, merged with ISIS-K very early on because historically um, the Taliban has been a Pashtun-dominated organization and when they ruled in the 90s, it was not a good time for a lot of non-Pashtun people in Afghanistan and those memories still stand and especially because the democratic government of Afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups which are non-Pashtun. So there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views 
probably would feel that um, ISIS might be more conductive to them. They might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist, ethnically based movement like the Taliban. Yeah, I'm proud of you joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get back into his article uh, at International Policy Digest, how the Taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces. A lot of bad news there. Also talk about the future Afghanistan update, what's been going on over there. Our friend Pat Yamul joining us on Hertel. More right after this break. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmesh Yamul from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now. And they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid-20s now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now, continuously. You you also have a situation where the Taliban does not really have many international allies. They don't have access to international streams of funding. Any resources that the uh, former government had, the you know Ghani government, they're all frozen in international banks. The Taliban does not have a lot of money per se, and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either. They've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, American and uh, Afghan security forces. And they they have never had, even though they've held territory for quite a long time, unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements, they've never attempted to, let's say, form a local administration or a shadow administration in place. They've in the war in Afghanistan has been a constant, you know, hide and seek game between uh, allied forces, uh, NATO forces and between the Taliban. So that leaves a situation where the, the Taliban have now won. And a lot of them will be asking themselves, OK, what do we do now? Along with this, there's also how do I say it? There's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the Taliban. There is, of course, the issue that there is the general Taliban that um, exists in Afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership. It's made up of a lot of local warlords, local forces, a lot of people who switched over to the Taliban only in recent times when, you know, the wind started blowing the other way. There's also the issue of 
a large block in the Taliban is made up of the so-called Haqqani network led by Sirajuddin Haqqani, which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the Taliban. There's also an issue regarding um, differences between the Taliban political leadership, which has been in Doha and, you know, the, one, the ones that negotiated with the United States who signed the agreement and the actual on the ground, you know, military leaders. And we don't know whether the military leaders would want to, you know, toe the same line that the political leadership would. The political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being. But a lot of for people who have been at war um, for longer than their whole lives, it raises a question of how do you ease them into um, a civilian peacetime administration? Uh, in a country like Afghanistan, where conflict is so prolonged, there's not much left to get money from. There's not there's not mu there's not much uh, sources of funding left for reconstructing a government. Along with this, at least as of yet, we have not seen the Taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues, and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either. Right. And, um, things. I'm sorry, I'm Pat sorry. Mishkin, uh, joining us. Uh, part of the reason they cannot get the international community, though, is not just their own brutality. As predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups they're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in uh, on in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, the second most important person in Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan and um, they've clearly broken that. So not only are their policies not conductive to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement, now it's very clear that they were housing the most important Al-Qaeda leader in their, in their capital, nonetheless. And um, they have not denied it. They have, in fact, called this an American uh, attack on their sovereignty. And, of course, you know, that's a different debate, but the the point that comes here is that they've basically create made themselves even less um, ideal as a partner in international eyes. And now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group, it's just worse. Pratimish Yamel joining us. Let's let's talk big picture for just a second. 
We know what happened. We know what a mess Afghanistan is. Talk about the people of Afghanistan because this, we just talked about it. The population has doubled. This generation didn't live under the Taliban previously, almost any of them. They are now. You ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike, that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We They had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from Cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely. Now, the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of, um, let's say, extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run an ins- run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh, territorial presence they've been attacking they've been conducting regular attacks in kabul they've been conducting regular attacks everywhere and the more the taliban you know tries to deal with this with a blunt approach the more it's just going to worsen things and i don't know about uh, the next 30 years of conflict but this thing is going to rage for a while especially if you know uh, they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in- improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either. You know, they've had uh, border clashes with Iran and we have seen how Iran res- uh, responds to instability on their borders. You know, they have responded to instability on their borders in Iraq and Syria. We don't know what they would do in Afghanistan. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the Taliban has gained control over their country, they're not being able to um, exercise exercise the ability and uh, let's say power that a normal government does. They're constantly having to deal with issues which if it was in a conventional state somewhere we'd see, we just call it a failed state. Like so basically for the next at least five or ten years i see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in five years or ten years but it's very rough because isis has shown that you can take their territory you can kill their militants they'll just have more and the thing is they don't need a lot of people to carry out the the kind of attacks they are carrying out and another major issue is that isis khorasan is operating in the provinces bordering Pakistan and they have a major presence in Khyber Pakhtunwa which is the province of Pakistan which borders um, Afghanistan so this becomes a you know transnational problem and 
the border around those areas is very porous so and it there's a lot of highland mountainous territory which the taliban will find it very hard to you know exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in now the other option then defeating them militarily is um, coming to terms with them and i i feel it might be a possibility for taliban but as said before they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement and i just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country basically they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can you know use armed actions and as long as they aren't able to do this they're basically all can operate as a failed state and i don't see that changing for quite a while yeah oddly enough the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability uh Mishimul, great stuff today one last question for you though for the western audience because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the zawahiri thing happens or god forbid you know there's a massive death toll or something like that What's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan? What should they be watching for? Because there's always going to be these little clashes. What should the Western audience and the American and English-speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for, honestly speaking, this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very, for lack of a better word, it's been it's been consistent but cons- like consistent in a negative way there's not there's no changes that have been occurring for western audiences i'd say there's always news about it it's just buried underneath a lot of other um let's say more important things for the west maybe but i would advise uh just keeping i would advise being informed about what isis does and what isis says because um as with the middle east and isis they're you know very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know as you find out that there's some kind of solution uh, coming up but unfortunately for now it's not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location uh, there's been a relative mass exodus of afghan sikhs uh, leaving their country and fleeing to india because it's simply not that safe anymore because there's isis targeting them the taliban is not going to help them out that much they're infidels for the more radical members of the taliban so you know you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to india and of course um while i'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries and it just shows that you know the most important thing here is the civilians and until we see less civilians being affected it's it's not going to get better
Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Karim Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. But just in the few days since you read it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it, because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism. But then when you look at China, where well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this. That's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. In the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story, because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic. One man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England, and he was protesting, and he got snatched up. But it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now, um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in you know jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags, um, ended up with him being arrested for like 
threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was, and they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely. And the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now. But yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high-profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this. And the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide. And you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, Like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people. Um, especially on college campuses too, there's, you know, the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists, How's it hit you? Do you feel a? Do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of I need to explain to them why this is so important? Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before, and they all talk about it. It's like this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden, and do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is 
it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So. Yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing. A lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously Syria was, is a terrible thing. When you see that's kind of the end game of it though, where you just have leveled sit, literally you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it, unfortunately. Talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important because that is how, you know, that crushing a dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad, we need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We come back, there's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jake, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. But when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing. 
boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the U.S., who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the, oh, the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in, um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two, because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for, what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad. We need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. come back to China for a minute. We know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew um, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about 
um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also, we talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese-Australian dissident, Vicky, uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it, too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP. Her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, she, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah. You also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the the, the uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens. It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are afraid to upset. They want to do business with China, so they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying Little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about. I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the U.S. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. 
there's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Uh, thanks for being with us for the Hurt Tell podcast. Long form for those of you that are used to the daily radio show. Haven't done one of these in a while. Going to get back to them on a topic that is very important, as promised. Uh, we don't just talk culture and politics. We talk how culture and politics work. And both of those things are studies of people, uh, how they work, how they govern themselves. That all goes to mental health. And it's a hot topic for the last few years. Way back in the beginning, uh, I think the fourth or fifth show we ever did was with Dr. Catherine Gordon, Mental Health. It is still one of the top five listened to podcasts we've ever done. So long past overdue to touch back in and run back with Dr. Catherine Gordon, who I'm going to call Katie the rest of the day because I will mess up and say that name wrong. Dr. Katie, how are you, ma'am? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh, I, I love having you on because... You do what we always like to do. We talk about these really hard, complex things, but you do it in a plain language way. Uh, you use a lot of pop culture, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Um, but let's start here with some nomenclature. Um, I think we blow by and we use buzzwords a lot. So I want to make sure we don't do that because we have time to dig into it today. But when we're talking about mental health, uh, we just say that term, but that's a wide, all-encompassing term for a whole lot of different things, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think people mean different things by it. And I think it's usually helpful in a way people contrast it to physical health, although most of us know how interconnected those things are. When we have anxiety, it certainly affects us physically. When we're feeling depressed, we can feel physically in pain or fatigued and all of those things. So mental health generally is looking at our thoughts and emotions and well general well-being, satisfaction with life, our outlook on life, how we feel about ourselves and others. And we we hear so much about it. We hear about removing the stigma. Where's the stigma come from? Because we know people are mean and people make fun of people, but that's not what we're really talking about with stigma, is it? Because it, it goes beyond just a teasing or a joking around or humor. When, when a mental health professional or when commentators like me are talking about we need to remove the stigma to mental health, what are they really saying there in plain language? I think that it's, it's the shame that can come from oneself or from other people, the idea that 
mental health problems or things people just need to snap out of, or that it means there's something wrong with the person for struggling. I think this has improved over time. There's still more to go, but I think there's a lot more understanding of that mental health problems are not the fault of the person who is struggling with them. I think more people get that now than in the past. One thing we talked about with the COVID-19 pandemic was this is kind of a unique thing in history where pretty much everybody on the planet had to deal with the same thing at the same time. That's really unusual. Like, and I understand there was waves and things like that, but for the most part, everybody was dealing with this at the same time. As a psychologist, as somebody that studies human behavior, I got to think that's kind of a unique event where everybody has the same stressor at the same time. That doesn't happen a lot. What have we learned from that? Because that's a heck of a control group for a scientist, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is really something that I would say, as I do therapy, often comes up in most of our sessions. We kind of talk about if someone was sick, if someone had to miss work, relatives that have been ill. So it's kind of, I've never had where most therapy sessions have one topic that's common across people. I think one of the things that we've learned from it is that people have responded really differently to it. Although I think most people have been stressed in one way or another, there are some people who, who if they have, for example, <clears throat> less flexibility at work or less support, they tend to be more isolated, they might be struggling more. And so I think even though it's one shared commonality, and in one way, I think that can make people feel less isolated and more connected, you can also see how different the impact is depending on individual circumstances. How much does isolation play into it? Because for a lot of people, um, the COVID-19 stuff, that was kind of the first time a lot of them in their lives, unless they're you know much older, remember like World War II or maybe the 70s gas, they don't remember things like uh, shortages on shelf. They don't remember things like lockdowns where you're not allowed to go somewhere unless you're in like a natural disaster area. This, this is stressors that a lot of Americans especially just have never faced before. They're not used to stuff like that. What is it about a brand new stressor out of the clear blue sky? Just something as simple as like, no, you can't go to school. No, you can't go to the grocery store, things like this. How bad does that just mess people's minds up? Because it's just if just starting at the, the lower level of, well, it's a break in routine to this just makes people completely melt down because they just can't handle something that different. It's a great question. I think that people were a lot of people we're feeling pretty resilient at the beginning, especially when the idea was that, okay, once we have vaccines, things are going to more or less return to normal. And I think as it's persisted, in my observation, I think it's been harder for people because they're starting to forget what does quote unquote norm, normal mean and how long is this going to go on? And so I think that's been difficult. And while some people have gone back to seeing people as much as they did before, the reality is that there are always these extra fears or, of people getting sick or things spreading or just other types of impact. And it's interesting how much that changes geographically, depending on where you are. In North Dakota, it's there aren't in the beginning of the pandemic, there were more restrictions, capacities at restaurants, they stopped sports, things like that. And now pretty much there is none of that. So I think that all shapes people's perspective and isolation as well. But I would definitely say that the more it persists for a lot of people, it's been harder for them. Let's uh, let's go through some demographics here. Mm -hmm. um, I, let's start with the kids. 
just on a common sense level, I'm not a scientist. I can read numbers. I can read data. Mm-hmm. But as a parent, just common sense level, if you interrupt two years, it, I know my kids were home out of school 18 months almost just to have like 14, 15 months total. That's solid. They didn't do the back and forth. There is no way you can throw that kind of disruption into childhood development and not have some kind of an after effect. How long is it going to be before we know that effect? Like scientifically, I don't think we know the full effect in the data, but you've already been seeing it. We know the numbers are through the roof of people seeking things like therapy and counseling. We've seen the behavior numbers in school. Is this something that's going to take a long time to really get our arms around what we just did? And I understand we kind of had to, so I, I, I get it. Is it going to be a long time before we get our hands around what we did to this generation of children with this uh, COVID pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's it's hard to even think about the after time as, as we still continue to go through the pandemic. But I and many mental health professionals and parents, like you said, just at a common sense level, are concerned about the impact on kids having their activities disrupted. I mean, even the ones where um, the school's have stayed pretty much open, there are just factors of teachers being absent because they're sick or faculty and staff or their friends being sick and all of that stuff. And all of that that uncertainty is difficult for kids who really thrive on routine and having regular um, expectations with regard to school. And that's another thing that understandably people were trying to adjust school back and forth, depending on what the rates were. But even that can be really difficult on kids. And then seeing their parents stressed is difficult, too. And so I I am concerned about the long term impact this is going to have on kids. And I think that we really need to have a lot of care available for them as as they get older. What are we looking for, like going forward? Because let's um, just picking a demographic here, because, you know, kids are more resilient than we give Mm -hmm. them credit for in a lot of ways. We don't want to blow anything off, but they are, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, we're parents, we understand we freak out a lot more than they do and they're fine sometimes. And sometimes it's the opposite. They freak out and we don't understand why. So what are you looking for from these age groups, uh, adolescents moving into teens, teens moving into adults? What's some of the kind of indicators or mile markers or whatever you want to call it? You tell me the terminology here. What are we looking for that we should be maybe paying attention to, concerned about or watching out for as these different demographic age groups start advancing and trying to, you know, even in their own minds, figure out what it is they just lived through. I think one of the things that's that I am concerned about and is is worth looking for is a general outlook on life in terms of do they have hope for the future? I think that one of the things that's been difficult through the pandemic is kind of getting hopes up that things are getting better and then there's a new wave and there's a new strain. And in addition to that, kids might have various feelings about how um, their government leadership, their school leadership are handling things. And I think that can start to make them question the world as a place that they can count on to be um, to be running smoothly for them to get what they need. And so I think it's important to check in with them about what what reasons they have for hope, how are they feeling connected with their friends, what do they think about in terms of their future, how has that been impacted. And so it's kind of a general worldview and and their meaning in life and how is that being impacted by all of this and talking to them about that.
Reverend Gordon. See, I said it right that time. Uh, clinical psychologist. Let's let's go with a little bit of an older group. Um, we've got all kinds of data from the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, that the college-age young adult demographic, that greatly changed their cultural perspective, that greatly changed their political uh, there was movement in their political views because they went through that financial crisis right as they were trying to enter the job market and buy homes and these sorts of things. What about the college age and young adult demographic? Uh, I'm one of those. Our our oldest uh, graduated college March of 2020. That was a great time to try to get graduated at college. Um, what about that demographic group? Because they're they're adults now. They're trying to enter the workforce. They're trying to kind of find their way in the world, and they have that during their college years, which is another one of those really important developmental times. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that one of the things that I've observed um, in interacting with college students is feeling some loss if they've if they've had college during the pandemic where the classes aren't the way they thought they were going to be, the experiences, the social experiences, which of course is a huge part of college, are different than they had hoped. And so I think we do see higher rates of anxiety and depression and, and less engagement in some of the college students that are struggling. And so I think that it's really important to recognize that, validate that those are understandable concerns, and then provide tools for managing mental health, for thinking about things, connecting, finding meaning, having friendships, finding ways to look forward and have hope. I think those tools are really important and often they need guidance with it. Yeah. And that age group, they're very online. Uh, Mm -hmm. They have a lot of their relationships already online. I know i I I noticed with my younger children, you know, they didn't really miss a beat talking to their friends because they all talk on social media anyway, TikTok and gaming and these sorts of things. Let's talk about a demographic that does not have that. Um, we've seen the numbers. Uh, they call it the great resignation. Uh, older Americans, a lot of them during the pandemic said, heck with this, I'm going to the house. They retired early. Um, they're not working as much. Older people are not working the part-time jobs they used to. What about the older Americans and and their kind of situation? Because some of them are not as online. So it hits them even harder when you have the isolation effects like a pandemic, like uncertainty economically, things like this. What about them? Yeah, I, I think that for some people resigning, that, that could be a good thing. Maybe they have more time to spend with their family and more time to take up with some of their hobbies. But one thing that I think is taken for granted sometimes is that we need to interact with people. We need to have relationships with people. It is essential to our health. And I think that it can kind of fall on the back burner and get ignored and lead to a lot of loneliness. So it actually takes a lot of intentional effort, especially if you're not regularly going to workplace, you're not regularly interacting online. And so it's important to find those times to make phone calls to go to places, whatever, go to church, whatever it is, and have those activities that keep us connected to one another and not kind of let it fall as an, as less of a priority than physical health. Yeah. And um, on that note, what is the issue with access? I know we talk about mental health, but we seem to have, before you even get into the services of mental health, is it the bum rush of people that are having mental health crises right now? Is it all those, we know the adolescent system is just absolutely flooded right now. 
why is access such a problem right now? Because that seems like it's not even a systemic issue with healthcare that we're already talking about. You, you can't get an appointment if you want one. What is going on with the access to care since you brought it up? There are only, only so many mental health professionals out there. And so when the need gets that high, it can really just exceed the ability to meet all of those needs. I think that that's especially true in areas that are more sparsely populated, like where I live in North Dakota, there are some rural areas where there aren't that many therapists. And when the demand is that much higher, it just makes it more difficult to get in. I think that this is part of the reason that it's so important to take preventative measures with mental health so that it's not waiting until people are in a crisis to get in. And and I think that um, that's something that some of the financial assistance, for example, especially that existed in the beginning of the pandemic, I think probably helped people's mental health early on because they had fewer stressors worrying about being able to pay for things that they need. And so that can kind of prevent it from getting to the point where many more people are in crisis and all at once trying to seek care. Yeah. Talking to Dr. Katie Gordon, um, the, the one perspective on this is that the access to care issue um, is a professional level one. The other one is that it's a systemic one, which ended now I'm usually on, on policy problems like this. I'm usually an all of the above guy, like, Hey, there's probably multiple ways we need to address this. But since you are a provider, you are, uh, which is the pressing need here? Is it the system isn't set up correctly or is it, we've just got to get more providers first. Cause we can't even, we don't even know how to set up a system. If you're this shorthanded. I am an all of the above person too. I think that, I think that there are, I think that we do, we need more providers, but I also think that there need to be ways that make it easier for people to access mental health care. I mean, the, the having, telehealth and video visits for therapy has been one thing that has been hugely advanced during the pandemic, more insurance coverage for video visits and phone calls, and that has helped access. So that's one example. We still need more, but that I would like to see sustained kind of permanently because that has allowed many more people to access care. Now talk about that in a practical way, because you are a provider. uh, You're on that end of it. Um, it's a calling, but it's also a business. Let's all be adults here. Every, almost everybody, even elderly folks now, everybody's got a cell phone. So just common sense wise, you're thinking if you got a cell phone, you should be able to get a mental health appointment pretty quickly. What's the obstacles from the business side of it and the provider side of it? We know the insurance is Byzantine and that sort of thing, but what do you see as a provider as barriers that we can maybe work at either regulatory wise or technology wise, because it seems like everybody's got the technology now, everybody's got a phone in their hand, so they should be able to get somebody on the line somewhere in the world. What's the preventatives? What's the barriers? I think, like you said, the big thing is insurance coverage. When insurance covers it, most people can make it work. Even if it's just a phone call, I think it's harder for children and probably people with certain mental health needs where it is more important that they're seen in person. It's harder to stay engaged on a phone for many children and and for some people. And so I do meet with people in person and also do telehealth and having both of those options has been helpful depending on what the person needs. But I think that um, being able to pay for it is has been the main thing that has come up is being able for people to have coverage for it. That's been the big thing as on a, from a provider standpoint, 
I, I have had no problem. I mean, there are technical issues sometimes, but the phone almost always works. And so as long as that's covered for the patient, then, then that's very workable. Is it, um, is, is, and I understand there's people like on the spectrum that have trouble with that. There's children, like you mentioned, elderly people may not even a, a simple smartphone. They may not be technologically savvy with it, but, um, especially when we start talking about, again, there's a spectrum of this like crisis care, like that initial, um, I know we've had you on the show. You've talked about suicide. You've written a book about suicide that we'll talk about later. You talk about like, man, sometimes it just takes that that five seconds to, for somebody to be able to contact somebody. It seems to me the critical care stuff of at least getting that initial, Hey, we don't have anybody right now, but can you get, can you make it two weeks? Can you do, it seems like that could be a bridge gap here of some type of, you can call somebody somewhere and get somebody on the phone line and it would make a huge practical and immediate difference to the mental health care crisis. I agree with that. I, I work in a medical setting and so often um, there are nurses who can contact and just make contact and, and they're, they're wonderful. They're empathic. They can help with problem solving. They can connect with community resources. And that way people don't feel like they're alone as they wait to get into care. And I'm, I'm a VA patient. So I know the VA one, there's a lot of things the VA does bad. I bang on them all the time. And they one thing they do did good now is um, your healthcare. You have secure messaging directly to your providers through the VA website now. I cannot tell you what a huge difference that is because so often you you just can't get somebody on the phone for a 30-second question. Now I can send them a message to my different care providers and you'll at least get a response. You may not get the answer because it's still the VA, but at least you get a hold of somebody. Um, is that something that's going to be scalable to the medical community at large? I know there's privacy concerns and stuff, but we, it seems like we are not adequately using technology, especially in mental health where there's privacy concerns, but that the privacy issues with um, doing technology from your own home, from your own, that's, that's an area where a lot of people mental health wise might actually be more comfortable than actually going in. Isn't it? I, I think that's right. I, I think that, um, and the healthcare system that I work in now has my chart, which a lot of systems have. And so patients are able to securely directly message me, which is better than email. I think a lot of providers use email or other types of things like that. My chart is more secure and security is extremely important when it comes to mental health care and, and private information. But I agree. I think that's been a big deal because if it's, if patient wants to just ask me something or tell me one quick thing, I can directly receive that. And that helps, especially sometimes the way that people manage wait lists for therapy is to see people every other week instead of every week. And that way you can see more patients. So being able to have that message option in the meantime is, is definitely helpful. We've been talking about uh, patient mental health a lot. How's the providers holding up? Like we don't stop and talk about that, but we already have a shortage of them. Uh, we've seen, I know the frontline healthcare workers for like, you know, the ERs and things, they've gotten a lot of it. I've got to imagine the flip side of the mental health crisis is our providers have got to be uh, stressed. They've got to be having their own mental health crises with this. 
how's the providers holding up? Because if we lose them, then the rest of this ain't going to matter a whole lot. So how y'all doing? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm really glad you asked that. I, in talking to other mental health providers, I think that a lot of us are, I mean, many of us go to therapy ourselves to make sure that we're doing okay and that we can, we can do our jobs, but it's, it's also unique in that we're going through the same kind of events as our patients are during this time. And I think that can help us connect with patients, but it can also make it difficult because there's not that distance when we're talking about coping with something. There are often things that we're, we're trying to cope with our own concerns about our children, about the long-term effects, about isolation. And so I think that it has been wearing and difficult. And I think that some people have reduced their caseloads or, you know, have done things like that, because I will say, at least in our training, something that is really important is that we are trained very well to pay attention to our levels of, of, of mental health and well-being, and to make sure that we're taking care of it so that we can provide good care. And so um, that's not always easy to do in practice. For example, if a lot of people want to get in and be seen, it's hard to say, no, I can't see you and keep our caseload manageable. So it's a struggle. I think that the, the biggest support has just been able to talk to other mental health professionals about how we're managing and check in on each other. Yeah. We're talking to Dr. Katie Gordon about mental health on her tell. I'm going to take a quick break when we come back. Uh, she has written a book on uh, suicide prevention, a workbook. When we last talked to her, it was getting ready to come out. Now it's been out. So we get to do a little bit of review how that's gone. Also going to continue to talk about the mental health care system, talk about access to care. And uh, we'll get into one of her favorite topics, using pop culture to talk about health care. Good examples and media. It's been a while since we talked, so hopefully she's got some new ones for us. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon, more with her on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to Dr. Katherine Gordon, clinical psychologist, friend of the program, uh, one of the OGs. She was one of the first episodes we ever did. Glad to finally have her back. Um, let's let's talk uh, suicide for a minute. Um, we had a very high profile suicide in the news this past week, uh, former Miss USA. Um, on paper, uh, law degree, MBA from Wake Forest, had a TV gig, uh, was living in New York City, um, seemed to have everything, beautiful young woman, only 30 years old. And although they're still doing an investigation, the authorities feel pretty confident this was a suicide, jumped off a building. This is just another example, isn't it, of you just never know with somebody what's going on in their head, no matter how successful no matter what's going on and suicide can kind of strike people from just out of nowhere. Can it? Absolutely. It is so heartbreaking. And I saw the statement by her mother who said that she, even she, even as close as they were, had just recently learned how bad her depression was that she was struggling. What do you do? I've asked you this question before, but where do you get involved with somebody? Where's the line? Because everybody's sad. We just talk about, you know, everybody's stressed. Everybody has anxieties from COVID or work or whatever. Where do you actually start worrying about, okay, do I need to call somebody? Okay. Do I need to leave this person alone? Uh, give folks just a, a couple of practical things because you don't ever want to be overbearing and, and, and people can feel intrusive doing that, especially to a loved one or a stranger. But when do you need to just kind of set aside that person's feelings and be like, okay, I need to call somebody. I need to get them seen. This person doesn't need to be left alone, that sort of thing. 
It's a great question. And one thing that I want to say um, first is that I think that sometimes when people weren't able to step in or stop someone from dying by suicide, they blame themselves. And so I'm going to give suggestions for what we what we can do and what we can try to do. But I also want to be clear that we can sometimes we just don't see it. We don't know how much someone is struggling. And sometimes we can try to intervene and 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 we aren't able to effectively do that. So if you've had that happen, um, you know, I, I, I think about this young woman's mom and her blaming herself for not seeing it. And I think it's important to recognize the limits of what we can do. That being said, we are all capable of reaching people who are open to it. And so if you see changes in, in someone, if you observe changes, even if they're not saying they're depressed or they're sad, but they, they just sound like they're feeling more hopeless or they feel like they're, they seems like they're not enjoying life. They're withdrawing from activities and people that they used to love. Then it's, it's always good to open up and check in with them. I'm a, a big proponent of being direct asking, are you, are you having thoughts about suicide? Are you doing okay? And the research suggests that asking directly does not plant the idea in people's head, but it can open a conversation. And the person might say, no, I'm, I'm not, but I'm struggling or they might say, yeah, I am, and, and talk about it. And so those are some of the big factors to look for. Some other things that you tend to see are um, that can be warning signs, although it varies depending on the person, is um, if they're having really disrupted sleep, they seem more agitated. So those are all things to look out for and worth checking in. In terms of when to push if someone doesn't want, if someone kind of doesn't want to talk about it, I think that's a really, it's a difficult question. And one of the things that I try to think about is if I'm really worried about someone and they don't seem like they want to talk to me in particular or want me to help connect them with someone, I might think about some of their loved ones, friends or family members who I can check in with too. Do you see this too? Are there things we might do together to help this person? Um, I hate to even give you this question, but this is just the world we live in. When do you get the authorities involved? Like, when would you call a 911? When would you call? I know there's crisis lines as well, but all they can really do is talk to you. But obviously, if there's a physical threat or a weapon or somebody's on a ledge or something like that, but that that's almost an outlier. Usually it's way more subtle than that, isn't it? Well, I, I hate to just say when in doubt, call somebody and let them make the call. But that's pretty much what you're down to in these situations, isn't it? This is such an area of controversy because I think that uh, I don't think there are any simple answers. I will say that if someone has, you know, done something to hurt themselves or they're about to and said that, then that is when I I personally um, would would want to call the authorities to prevent them from being from being harmed. I think that if there are other ways, for example, if they're they're talking about suicide, but there's an opportunity to get them in the emergency room for to go over there and those types of things. I mean, it, it's hard to say. I don't mean to be vague. It's just there are so many different factors that go into it um, that that I think there are other things to do besides call the authorities in a lot of situations. But on the other hand, sometimes that's the thing that can help if someone is imminently going to hurt themselves and and you need help. Yeah. You've talked about when you were interviewed you before the book came out, um, the Suicide Thought Workbook. Have it right here. Um, I did read it. You were nice enough to send me a copy of it. Um, When you're talking about self-help, 
and self-care because like, you know, you live in a very rural part of the country up there in the, the northern Great Plains. When people are just by themselves, it, is there an effective way to give them some kind of a self-coping tool? Because I, I know there's no such thing as a cure-all for, you know, there's no Tylenol for suicide prevention. You know, there's not one bullet. But what have you found out? Because you've had about, what, a year since the book came out, give or take. You've got some feedback and data on it now. Is these tools applicable and are they working for these people that are isolated that they can get a book and at least it gets maybe their mind just shifted a lot? We talk in my therapy at PTSD all the time, but like sometimes you just got to shift your mind or physically change your mind. Is it effective? That's the feedback that I'm getting is, um, you know, that people find it helpful. Many of them are also in therapy alongside it and don't find it as uh, as a replacement. They also, there is something about having a dialogue and conversation that can be helpful, especially when you're struggling. But there are also people who won't go to therapy or can't access it. And so being able to buy a book for $20 that they can do in the privacy of their own home and not worry about being seen, sometimes that's a better fit for them too. And so the idea was to give more options, of the maximal amount of options available. And there are, um, I have had some positive feedback about the it's a workbook. So the idea was to make it close to therapy where it's not kind of just throwing all this heavy jargon at someone and, and they have to think about it and have some huge epiphany or revelation. It's very much broken down into step by step. I ask, you know, the, the workbook asks a question, they fill it in. There are some small steps to take to make things better, but the overall picture of building hope reducing pain and, and connecting. So I've been very grateful for the positive feedback I've received from people that either working with their therapist or working with it on their own, that they found it to be helpful. Talk about the connection of those two, because I've heard you talk about it. You've written about it a lot. You've talked about it on other podcasts. There's a connection between hope and pain. And I, I don't know how, how direct a line that is, but people in pain lose hope and people with hope can cope with an, an extraordinary, the, the mental ability to handle pain and loss and challenges, if you can hold on to hope, is something beyond what science can, I think you'd agree with this, beyond what science can explain. What, why are those two things so intrinsically connected when it comes to mental health? Because they really seem like, not that this is a perfect seesaw, but if you were going to have one, those would be the two counterweights, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. And there, and most theories of suicide, scientific theories of suicide, do look at pain and hope. A lot of people, does, when they desire suicide, it's because they they want to escape pain. It's not that they they want to die. They don't want to exist. It's it's not that. It's that they're in excruciating pain and and they want some relief from it. And hope can be a huge buffer because even if someone is in deep pain if they feel there's any chance of it lifting and things improving in the future, they can hold on and say, okay, I'm in pain now, but I'm, it's, if it's going to improve, I can wait through this. I, I don't need to end my life. And so that's how they're related. It, it soothes some of the pain to know that it's not going to be permanently at that excruciating level. What is it um, about pain that just completely disrupts our I don't even know the right term here, so you can help me, but that, that brain body connection to use a real cliche term, but what is it about pain that just completely short circuits everything about our thought process and our emotions? 
One analogy that I've heard by Dr. David Klonsky, who's a psychologist who wrote the three-step theory, which I feature in the book, that I thought was a really useful way to compare to pain is he talked about when you have food poisoning and you're so sick, you can't really think of doing anything else because it's all consuming how terrible you feel. Uh, and that's kind of how pain can be when it hurts that bad, that you, it's, it is physically very difficult to move your attention to other spaces or to imagine feeling better or feeling different because if we think about it from like an evolutionary perspective, we're meant to pay attention to pain. It means something's wrong. It means we need to do something to, to make it better. And so that's why I think it just becomes all encompassing until we learn tools to manage, step back and alleviate it. lighten the topic up a little bit because okay. this is always really heavy talking to Dr. Catherine Gordon. Uh, I love you do this. You do this every time we talk to you, but you love to use pop culture references to talk about mental health. We're talking about some ways to self-care. Part of that is in taking media that portrays mental health in a good way. So give us a couple of the new ones. Uh, I know you've wrote about like BoJack Horseman in the past, other shows that have had good positive, some that kind of surprise folks, but what's a couple you've seen lately? Positive mental health applications in media and movies and TV shows, whatever the case may be. The show I've been big on watching lately is Cobra Kai. And um, hopefully some people are still watching it. I know it kind of, it gets, uh, well, let's just say it kind of, I think after the first couple seasons, it's just the karate. Some people tire of that, but I'm still enjoying it. I think there've been some really good mental health depictions in that show. Um, for example, Sam, who is uh, Daniel's daughter, is attacked by Tori. And at first she has flashbacks and panic attacks as a result of that. So you see some realistic depictions of someone after they've experienced trauma, um, trying to avoid reminders of it, trying, uh, having kind of a physiological startle reaction when seeing the person having flashbacks and, and that impacting her life. So I thought that was a good depiction. I think that Johnny, as the main character, he struggles a lot with alcohol use. And I think that they managed to find a way, even though there are a lot of characteristics about him that people might not like, to find likable or sympathetic and that you can see how he's kind of feels like a failure. And when he tries, he, he, and doesn't live up, then he tends to turn to alcohol again. And so I think that some of the depictions in there have been pretty good. Yeah. I, I find Hollywood to be really ridiculous in a lot of cases. And I'm, I know we're doing streaming and it's not all Hollywood anymore, but for lack of a better term, you know, like where we have, <laughs> we have parental ratings about there's smoking in this picture. Like what really? But I think alcohol and, and to a lesser extent drug use, I think that's something that I've really seen a change in my lifetime. I'm 41. Um, I, I've really seen a change in how it's portrayed in media. And there, there's just no way to another one of those things you just can't split up. You can't talk mental health 
without people self-medicating either with alcohol or drugs, or you can even do it with your work. As I've learned, you can, you can work yourself addictively like everything else. Um, do you see that as well? Or am I accurate in that? Do you think that has gotten better in how it's portrayed? I think so. I think that it's, it's less, I think that there are ways that it's shown, um, kind of less as like a self-control issue and more of that people have a lot of stressors and one way that they might be prone to dealing with that is through substance use. And one of the things that they have done on Cobra Kai is they show a lot of backstories and show kind of when they didn't learn good mental health coping tools and some of the absence of parental figures in their life. And so I think that kind of context helps to make a more realistic picture of why someone might continue to try to escape the negative emotions they're feeling or the pain they're feeling through alcohol or substance use. Yeah. And I don't want to give away plot lines on Cobra Kai because my kids love that show. I, I needed, I needed in small doses, but um, when they took Chris back to Vietnam, I thought that was actually, I, I, I cringed when my, my kids said they were going to do it. I was like, uh Oh, here we go. I thought they actually did really well with that. I thought because you have such a just bluntly evil character and, you know, some of it was a little over the top, the military accuracy wasn't there, but as far as explaining how somebody becomes evil and I hate to use that term, but he's the bad guy in a movie. Mm -hmm. um, I actually thought they did pretty well with that. All things considered. Well, that that's good to hear from someone with a military background, kind of that you felt that, that there was some accuracy to it. Yeah. I, 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 I get the, you know, evil person puts you in an evil environment and you become evil to survive that that's a classic what's the term coping skill i guess but that's that that's just human nature 101 stuff and if you're going to tell a story like that and talk about mental health you know this is all human behavior 101 stuff and we always talk about on our show human nature is undefeated you just got to try to learn to get some wins where you can right mm -hmm. uh dr katie gordon we so appreciate talking to you uh we talked about the book a little bit so you talk about it tell us about uh the workbook you also do other media you do podcasting you do some writing we'd love to have you back at ordinary times anytime you want to write about cobra kai or anything else again you're you got an open invitation let folks know where you're at where you're writing what you're doing Sure. Well, you can, um, lately what I've been working mostly on is my podcast, which is called psychodrama podcast. And I co-host with another psychologist. We tend to talk about societal controversies, mental health, um, psychological issues. And we really try to talk about things with some care and expertise and, and look at different facets of the issue. And I like podcasting for that because I think that when people talk, you can kind of hear more versus, I don't know, tweet arguments or something like that. So um, that's, that's the main thing I've been working Was on. Was that a then, shot at me? You kind of looked uh, at me. No. And <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. I don't, I don't see you in a ton of Twitter fights, but <laughs> No, I think that was that was praise to you for your podcast. Um, <laughs> good, recovery. good recovery. Good recovery. Good. <laughs> anyway, no, I, <laughs> tell them about your social media and your podcast. I am on Twitter at Dr. Catherine Gordon, D-R-K-T-H-R-Y-N-G-O-R-D-O-N. It's the same on Instagram. And you can listen to Psychodrama Podcast on most podcast platforms. I also write, although I... I have been writing less just for the sake of time. I, I do sometimes write for psychology today, but you can find links to the stuff I've written on my website, katherinehgordon.com. And you do great work and we appreciate you. you greatly. 
this stuff isn't going to go away and we're not going to stop talking about it um, because I, we don't want to diagnose people, but so much of what we see in culture and politics on social media and how politics is covered, I think a lot of it, if you understand how people are thinking, how people are coping, people's mental health, I think you start explaining a lot of things that the politics don't because I've learned in what I've been doing the last three or four years with, you know, politics is usually just the coat you're putting on and yeah. your cultural tribes are kind of the coat you put on. And the stuff that's underneath it is where you can really get to the story. And you probably have big, fancy scientific words for that phenomenon. But I, everything we do is about people. And if we study people, you've got to talk mental health. So you use the fancy scientific words for that, but that's where I'm at on it. Uh, I, I really, I really appreciate our conversations. And the mo- one of the most important things to me as a psychologist and having these discussions is moving away from the big fancy words and making it accessible so that people can use it in their daily lives, that it's not just restricted to psychologists. Yeah. Plus us hillbillies, we have trouble with them big words sometimes. So I appreciate that greatly. So Dr. Catherine Gordon, who can explain it to us in an academic setting and also explain it to us like we're five. We greatly appreciate you, ma'am. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you will be back, I promise. So absolutely, uh, take care. We are going to talk about mental health on this program, both on Herdtel, the long form, and on the radio show, The Daily Show. Uh, It's too important not to. So much of what we do is just based on our own human behaviors, and we excuse it off with other things, but if we don't take care of our own mental health, and we don't take care of each other's mental health, and we don't care about each other's mental health, while this other stuff we're talking about just isn't mattering as much, we want to gloss over things and stay busy without dealing with these underlying problems, and we're not going to do that. Um, our culture has major problems in it. And a lot of those problems are we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not taking care of each other. Something we're going to work on, something we're going to talk about. We're going to have experts on like Dr. Katie Gordon and others. We want to give you tools to actually affect this in your own life, taking care of people around you, what to watch for, danger signs, but also positive uh, pop culture media. The reason we talk about those TV shows and movies with her is because if you have somebody that you're having trouble getting into a mental health conversation with them, you can watch a show with them and get into it sideways that way. It makes you a nice easy, lets the show do the heavy lifting, and then all you got to do is talk to the person that you care about. Kind of makes it easy. We want to do practical things on our programs. It's not just buzzwords and ethereal theory and things that somebody somewhere else needs to do something about. This is a practical matter that you need to practically apply to your life. It's important. We want to do that. And we'll continue to talk about it on Herd Tell. That'll do it for this episode of the Herd Tell podcast. Uh, the Herd Tell Daily Show every weekday uh, for about an hour uh, on the YouTube channel. If you want to watch it, all the podcasting platforms, Big Talker FM is streaming it. You can do it on their Listen Live tab on their app, from the App Store. Also, their Facebook page, Big Talker FM on Facebook. You can watch it there. It's on at 6 a.m. in the mornings, 3 p.m. in the evenings. We have 
great content every day trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle, kind of hit some of the headlines. We talk about things that matter. We don't talk about things that don't matter. And there's just caterwauling noise. We don't spend time with that because most precious thing you give us is your time. We want to respect it. We don't want to talk about things that don't matter. We don't want to waste your time on us being silly. So we try to respect you by doing the best we can with it. We'd sure appreciate you subscribing on whatever platform works best for you. Uh, also leave a comment and rating. We sure appreciate it. If you have something you want to convey to us, if you got a comment, an epistle, whatever it may be, you got a topic you want covered, you got a guest you think we should talk to, let us know. Herdtellshow at gmail.com. You can email us at herdtellshow on the Twitter. You can direct messages that way. My Twitter handle, Four for the Fire, you can message me there. We'd love to hear from you. We've already done some topics on the shows based off of what listeners have asked us to cover. We'd love to do so again. Love to get your feedback. Um, if you would do us a real big solid, though, share us on your social media. All those platforms have a share button. Let people know where they can find Herd Tell. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. So happy to have these long-form podcasts back up and going. We'll be digging into these issues. These will come out on the weekends, Monday through Friday. We'll see you here for the Herd Tell Daily Show uh, with a great guest every day and the topics of the day. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. None of this works without you. We wouldn't have anybody to talk to. You're the most important part of what we do. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you next time for Herd Tell. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pratamesh Yamul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fold fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there, because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there. Pick the story up there. What what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh and um, Ahmed Masood, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander. He was uh, son of the famous Ahmed Shah Masood. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley. Um, in uh, it's I think north of Kabul as far as I remember and there was an attempt to put up resistance there which didn't last for too long you know they weren't that well supported they were surrounded from all sides and um, after that for the most part the Taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, 
country but what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense they have formed a government a state they've appointed their leadership but there's been quite a quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern uh, administer and um, enforce laws among other things one of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took kabul and took over afghanistan has been um, an organization called isk or daesh k which is uh, it is basically an affiliate of the islamic state in syria and iraq that we know so well and it's the local affiliate of uh, isis called isis khorasan province or vilayat khorasan and they have basically um, they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government but they've kind of used the chaos that came with um, the taking of kabul and you know the taliban trying to form a new state new government to exert their control over the, most of the country they've used that chaos to um, exercise terror basically they've had they've had constant attacks on the taliban taliban troops taliban police and they've done constant um, terrorist attacks on civilian places they've attacked mosques they've attacked hospitals they've attacked um, schools they've as recently as yesterday there was an uh, not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on a gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshippers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern afghanistan mainly nangarhar and kunar province and um, a third called nuristan where they have a somewhat lesser presence and these are high mountainous provinces you know hard to get so they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there and ever since they've constantly been attacking civilian sites they've been attacking taliban members and they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could and basically that's what's been going on there've been major attacks they've attacked um they've attacked shiite mosques they've attacked uh, sikh religious sites they've attacked hospitals they were, i think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital if i'm not wrong they've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh, power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e holiday of eid and um basically 
they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible if you uh, remember during the american pullout from afghanistan or the fall of kabul there was a suicide attack at kabul airport where uh, american servicemen died and you know 170 or so afghans died if i'm not wrong and uh, this attack was also carried out by isis khorasan so basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the I, i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region now on the outside observers because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the west especially in american media when americans aren't involved people probably are wondering why are they fighting there's some important differences between isis k and the taliban though the taliban of course came out of the pashtun nationalism the tribal people they were the original um the mujahideen if you're old enough to go all the way back to the soviet era uh, for lack of a better way of explaining it, ISIS-K sees them more locally and they see themselves as more of the international branch. There's some other ideological differences, though. Why is it a shooting blood for you? You call it a turf war for our Western parlance. This is just going to be an internal thing, right? There's not going to be any detente here. There's not going to be a peace among them, right? Not likely. Because, well, for one, this is... I call it a turf war because this conflict is not only ideological, but for some of them, it's personal. You see, ISIS Khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what uh, of the organization that is Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, which is basically the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, so two of the major leaders who formed ISIS-K, one of them was Hafiz Saeed Khan, who was a Pakistani, from Tehriki Taliban Pakistan and another one uh, I can't remember his name but was a pretty high uh, Taliban leader Afghan Taliban leader so this isn't just ideological but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership along with this there is of course the fact that um, that basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience they're say they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight along with that this conflict also has its roots uh, kind of in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between al qaeda and uh, the islamic state the islamic state broke away as a part of al qaeda and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide islamist movement so it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position they're not going to have any form of detente because islamic state claims itself to be a province uh, islamic state in khorasan play claims to be a province of um the global islamic caliphate they will have an amir the islamic emirate of afghanistan also claims to have an amir as their leader you can't have two um leaders in one place and the so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um 
Islamic conservatism. The Taliban are Deobandis, which is an Islamic uh, revivalist movement, a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era India. And uh, it has its roots much closer to Pashtun ethnic um, nationalism and their ethnic code called Pakhtun Wali. While um, the Islamic State is Salafist, you know, they have their roots in the Middle East and they have a much more global outlook for one. And another thing is that um, the Islamic State is kind of a kind of an attraction for those Islamists in Afghanistan who are not Pashtuns, like Tajiks, Uzbeks. We can see this especially because an organization called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan uh, merged with ISIS-K very early on because historically um, the Taliban has been a Pashtun-dominated organization. And when they ruled in the 90s, it was not a good time for a lot of non-Pashtun people in Afghanistan. And those memories still stand. And especially because the democratic government of Afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups, which are non-Pashtun. So there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views probably would feel that um, ISIS might be more conductive to them. They might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist, ethnically based movement like the Taliban. Yeah, I'm proud of Moshe Yomul joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get back into his article uh, at International Policy Digest, how the Taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces. A lot of bad news there. Also talk about the future Afghanistan update, what's been going on over there. Our friend Pat Yomul joining us on Herdtel. More right after this break. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmesh Yamul from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now. And they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid-20s now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? 
exactly yeah i mean first of all you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now continuously you you also have a situation where the taliban does not really have many international allies they don't have access to international streams of funding any resources that the uh, former government had the you know ghani government they're all frozen in international banks the taliban does not have a lot of money per se and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either they've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, american and uh, afghan security forces and they they have never had even though they have held territory for quite a long time unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements they've never attempted to let's say form a local administration or a shadow administration in place they've in the war in afghanistan has been a constant you know hide and seek game between uh, allied forces uh, nato forces and between the taliban so that leaves a situation where the the taliban have now won and a lot of them will be asking themselves okay what do we do now Along with this, there's also, how do I say it? There's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the Taliban. There is, of course, the issue that there is the general Taliban that um, exists in Afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership. It's made up of a lot of local warlords, local forces, a lot of people who switched over to the Taliban only in recent times when, you know, the wind started blowing the other way. There's also the issue of a large block in the Taliban is made up of the so-called Haqqani network led by Sirajuddin Haqqani, which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the Taliban. There's also an issue regarding um, differences between the Taliban political leadership, which has been in Doha and, you know, the, one, the ones that negotiated with the United States who signed the agreement and the actual on the ground, you know, military leaders. And we don't know whether the military leaders would want to you know toe the same line that the political leadership would the political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being but a lot of for people who have been at war um for longer than their whole lives it raises a question of how do you ease them into um a civilian peacetime administration uh, in a country like Afghanistan, where conflict is so prolonged, there's not much left to get money from. There's not there's not mu there's not much uh, sources of funding left for reconstructing a government. Along with this, at least as of yet, we have not seen the Taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues, and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either. Right. And, um, things. I'm sorry, I'm Pat sorry. Mishra, uh, joining us. Uh, part of the reason they cannot get the international community, though, is not just their own brutality. As predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups they're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. 
I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in uh, on in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the longtime leader of al-Qaeda, the second most important person in al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan. And um, they've clearly broken that. So not only are their policies not conducted to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement, now it's very clear that they were housing the most important al-qaeda leader in their in their capital nonetheless and um they have not denied it they have in fact called this an american uh, attack on their sovereignty and of course you know that's a different debate but the the point that comes here is that they've basically create made themselves even less um, ideal as a partner in international eyes. And now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group, it's just worse. Pratamishi Amel joining us. Let's, let's talk big picture for just a second. We know what happened. We know what a mess Afghanistan is. Talk about the people of Afghanistan, because this we just talked about it. The population has doubled. This generation didn't live under the Taliban previously, almost any of them. They are now. You ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We, they had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely. Now, the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of, um, let's say, extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run an ins run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh, territorial presence they've been attacking they've been conducting regular attacks in kabul they've been conducting regular attacks everywhere and the more the taliban you know tries to deal with this with a blunt approach the more it's just going to worsen things and i don't know about uh, the next 30 years of conflict but this thing is going to rage for a while especially if you know 
they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in- improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either you know they've had uh, border clashes with iran and we have seen how iran res- uh, responds to instability on their borders you know they have responded to instability on their borders in iraq and syria we don't know what they would do in afghanistan and um i guess what i'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the taliban has gained control over their country they're not being able to um exercise exercise the ability and uh, let's say power that a normal government does they're constantly having to deal with issues which if it was in a conventional state somewhere we'd see we just call it a failed state like so basically for the next at least 5 or 10 years i see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in 5 years or 10 years but it's very rough because isis has shown that you can take their territory you can kill their militants they'll just have more and the thing is they don't need a lot of people to carry out the, the kind of attacks they are carrying out and another major issue is that isis khurasan is pro operating in the provinces bordering pakistan and they have a major presence in khyber pakhtunwa which is the province of pakistan which borders um afghanistan so this becomes a you know transnational problem and the border around those areas is very porous so and it there's a lot of high land mountainous territory which the taliban will find it very hard to you know exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in now the other option then defeating them militarily is um coming to terms with them and i i feel it might be a possibility for taliban but as said before they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement and i just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country basically they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can you know use armed actions and as long as they aren't able to do this they basically all can operate as a failed state and i don't see that changing for quite a while yeah oddly enough the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability uh pratamishyam well, great stuff today one last question for you though for the western audience because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the zawahiri thing happens or god forbid you know there's a massive death toll or something like that What's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan? What should they be watching for because there's always going to be these little clashes. What should the western audience and the American and English speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for honestly speaking this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very for lack of a better word, it's been it's been consistent but cons- like consistent in a negative way there's not there's no changes that have been occurring for western audiences i'd say there's always news about it it's just buried underneath a lot of other um let's say more important things for the west maybe but i would advise uh 
just keeping i would advise being informed about what isis does and what isis says because um as with the middle east and isis they're you know very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know there's you find out that there's some kind of solution uh coming up but unfortunately for now it's not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location uh, there's been a relative mass exodus of afghan sikhs uh, leaving their country and fleeing to india because it's simply not that safe anymore because there's isis targeting them the taliban is not going to help them out that much they're infidels for the more radical members of the taliban so you know you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to india and of course um while i'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries and it just shows that you know the most important thing here is the civilians and until we see less civilians being affected it's it's not going to get better Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Karen Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. But just in the few days since you read it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism. But then when you look at China, well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this. That's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. 
in the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic. One man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England and he was protesting and he got snatched up. But it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now. Um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um, a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in, you know, jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags um, ended up with him being arrested for like uh, threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was, and they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely, and the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now, finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now, but yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this, and the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide, and you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people, um, 
especially on college campuses too, there's, you know, the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. Let me ask you about that, because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists, how's it hit you? Do you feel a, do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of, I need to explain to them why this is so important? Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before and they all talk about it. It's like, this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden? And do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is, it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So, yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing. A lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously, Syria was is a terrible thing. When you see that's kind of the end game of it, though, where you just have leveled sit. Literally, you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it. Unfortunately, talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important because that is how, you know, that crushing of dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy 
and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad, we need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We come back. There's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jig, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. But when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing. Boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the US, who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in, um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for, what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act 
of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishdi or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad, we need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. come back to China for a minute. We know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew um, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also, you talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese-Australian dissident, Vicky, uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it, too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP. Her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, she, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah. You also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the the, the uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. 
But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens? It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are mm -hmm. afraid to upset. They want to do business with China, so they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about, I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the US. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. There's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. to her tell he's one of our favorites because he's sharp he's up and coming he's been all over media lately he's been doing it we're going to link to all his stuff james janowski always great to have you back our friend how are you i'm doing great andrew thanks for having me man you you cover tech and stuff so boy howdy is business a booming for you my friend yeah it's always busy in the world of technology uh, especially now that elon musk is full-throated into it outside of starlink and tesla you know now he's into the social media stuff and we're all just along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about Musk for the most of this, but I wanted to ask you a big picture question first before we get into it. Yeah. Um, we now know the Republicans are going to have the majority in the House, but not much, you know, five, six seats, somewhere in that neighborhood. They're going to wind up with about 219. 
I also talk to you a lot because you pay attention to these hearings that get headlines, but people don't really pay attention to the ins and outs of it. We've talked about it over and over again. Tech companies, big tech, tech regulations, social media, all these things. We're going to have hearings like we always have on them. They're going to pull them up there. The Republicans are going to be in charge of them instead of the Democrats now, like the last two years. What do you expect to happen in those hearing rooms? Because the not to use Meta because Facebook co-opted that, but kind of the overarching theme has always been most of the time the congressional folks kind of look dumb and like they don't know what they're talking about in these hearings, but then the headlines come out about regulation. Do you expect there to be a noticeable change in the regulatory hearings and the pressure from Washington on these tech companies? Yeah, I think that there will be some degree of change, uh, given that Republicans did not go and take over uh, both chambers. And the majority, as you noted, that they have uh, is a little bit slimmer than I think people might have anticipated. I'm sure that will go and change what it might look like. But there is definitely an anticipated uh, level of scrutiny that will come with a Republican leadership against tech companies. And some of it is certainly well deserved. Um, but, you know, there's going to be a focus on oversight. Uh you know, and that's a good thing. I think that, you know, they want to go and hold the Biden administration accountable for other areas where they've been less than ideal. Um, and I think that they also want to look a little bit more closer at, at his son, Hunter Biden, and their family business dealings. They've been very uh, clear about wanting to pursue that. But when it comes to technology, um, I'm sure we'll go and get back to the wonderful conversations around Section 230 um, and what things might look like in, in a Republican vision uh, for 230 reform or some other kind of bill, like for example, uh, Representative Jim Jordan and Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, they have a bill that would basically expand the Hatch Act. Uh, and that would be an effort to try to reduce the ability of a government actor to, to engage in what's called jawboning of these social media companies, uh, essentially pressuring them to take action on content. Um, that's something that we've heard about being reported through various outlets over the past year and change, uh, whether that was the FBI and their interactions with Facebook or, um, you know, DHS and their interactions with many of these social media platforms or other actors within the Biden administration, more broadly speaking. Uh, so Jen Psaki, for example, uh, in that Missouri lawsuit that Eric Schmidt has over job boning, uh, she tried getting out of having to do a deposition, but the judge denied that motion. Uh, so she might have to go and, and get deposed by General Schmidt, who will soon be in the Senate as uh, Senator Schmidt uh, and that team over there. So there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. I think it opens up a lot of opportunities to have different kinds of conversations in technology that are very important. So I think that there's it's not all bad by any stretch of the definition, but there's actually a lot of good opportunities here, too. Yeah, James Janowski joining us. That's Congress. Do you see any change because you do this all the time now? You've been doing all these hits. Do you see any change in how the news media is covering technology? Because it feels a little bit like we're in a bit of a narrative rut with big tech. Um, I don't even like that term big tech because it's too expansive, but that's what we got to work with. Does it feel like we're in a little bit of a narrative rut here? It doesn't seem like we're really moving the ball on the news media or the investigation stuff. I know the Musk stuff's loud, but that kind of, Un that kind of uncovered for me when I actually step back and look at is like, oh, well, we're just taking all these existing narratives and then putting it on top of the Twitter thing instead of actually investigating what's happening with Twitter. And I'm just using that as an example. Does it feel that way to you? Because it seems like we're having the same tech conversation over and over again now. We're not really moving the ball forward much. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right, is that we're revisiting and relitigating a lot of the same conversations in terms of like, let's say, 230. It's about what it does and does not do. 
um, you know, the constitutionality of a lot of these bills that are being presented and ideas. Uh, but there's definitely a vested interest in wanting to be critical of the tech companies. And again, some of it is deserved. And a lot of it, I would say, is not. I don't think, for example, that it's fair to go and put addiction uh, for for social media uh, on kids. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily a fair claim. I don't think that the data bears that out. I think that there's a lot of focus on the negative because negativity sells, unfortunately, uh, particularly if it's tied to fear or outrage. So whether that's in the instance of going back to my previous comments, like the the jawboning from government to the tech companies or looking at, you know, unfortunately a child who died because she did a blackout challenge on TikTok. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are happening and, and none of them are great, but to go and put it at the feet of social media, I think is grossly inappropriate too. Um, so I think that there's, there's conversations that have to happen, but we also need to go and shift how some of it is being talked about and get to the root causes of what some of these issues are and what kinds of things we can do as a society to go and tackle some of those issues, because there are things that technology companies can do. Um, and unfortunately, I don't like the big tech thing either, because I actually think that it lends them too much credence in that, you know, they're, they're these all powerful beings that can go and control so much. And yet, uh, you know, Twitter is a company that just got bought out by Elon Musk and, you know, Meta's shaved 800 billion off of its uh, market capitalization. So these companies are nowhere near as powerful as people would like to think. Um, and they're making mistakes and they, they can't really go and solve all these problems on their own. So I think that there's room for us to have conversations about other angles where we can go and tackle teen mental health or, or addiction or other kinds of problems that we're seeing pop up. Yeah, James Jarnowski joining us. You just mentioned it. There seems to be a little bit of a shift on the business side. And this is one of the reasons I like talking about you because you don't just talk about the content side. You understand the business side of this stuff. Amazon doing some pairing back on their, what we used to call the enterprise side of a corporate business. I don't know if they use that term anymore, but the computer side, the technology side, uh, drawdowns, drawbacks, stunting their own growth a little bit, doing some layoffs. Um, other tech companies, we've seen kind of an adjustment. What's going on with that? Is it the post-COVID era where everything got more online and now this is kind of a natural adjustment back? Uh, look, trees don't grow the skies, the old stock thing. Is Amazon just kind of reaching the cap of what it's going to be as a company? As big as it is, there is going to be a limit on it. What do you make of those kind of headlines in the tech space that we're seeing this? It's not a loss, really, but it's more of a stunting of growth and some jobs pairing back. But it's noticeable when it's one of the biggest companies in the world in Amazon that had an exponential growth before this. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And I think the reality is, is that when you look at the past few years, the COVID certainly played a role, especially with lockdowns. Everybody had to basically go online, which meant that a lot of their basic activities were shifted online. Um, so these companies had a lot of money flowing into them as a result of that um, by no fault of their own. Um, and they invested to go and support that growth that they had. And now that we're out of the pandemic, um, or we're at least, you know, putting it in the rearview mirror more so day by day, the problem becomes that basically uh, these companies are realizing that they might have over invested or over allocated resources in these ways. So like Meta went and laid off 13% of its workforce at 11,000 jobs. Amazon laid off 10,000 jobs. Um, you know, you had Twitter basically lose well over 50% of its employee base by now. And if you added up all the different jobs that have been cut back in the tech industry uh, in the past year, more or less, it adds up to well over 120,000 jobs that have been lost, which is larger than the dot-com bust back in the day 
during the early era of the internet as well. So I think that there's a lot of readjustment going on right now. Part of that's due to COVID. Part of that's due to bad investments. Um, even Disney is going and pairing back and expected to do some layoffs. CNN is expected to do some layoffs. So everybody's feeling the pinch, right? And part of that's also due to the policies that were enacted during COVID uh, that had led to a lot of inflation, which meant that access to capital was a little bit harder uh, and more expensive. And then companies aren't as willing to make those investments when the cost of capital is a lot higher, right? So I think that there's a lot of factors going in here. Iger's back at Disney now, too. Something somebody yeah. we'll talk about that in the future. That's a very interesting development. Uh, James Zernowski joins us. Okay, let's talk about the big disruption in tech that we've all been hearing nonstop for the last few weeks. Elon Musk at Twitter. Let's start with this part of it, though. Um, for example, headline of the Atlantic right now What will t- writers do without Twitter? Twitter is dying. Um, I even put this out of the I think that part of it's too much doom and gloom. I, I, I was joking on Twitter. I was like, I'd love to go back to like 1996 me and explain that there'd be this random Thursday night in 2022 where hundreds of people start sending me their phone number just to see the reaction. Yeah. I no. think the overreaction, I don't think it's going away because it's too ingrained of a platform. I think whatever's happening with Elon Musk is important, but I also think it's a phase one way or the other. I think the doom and gloom's overwrought. What do you think? Oh, yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with you 100%. I think that people have looked at the Twitter situation with Elon Musk and they've come to their conclusions one way or another. Um, and I think part of it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where they want it to fail um, because they don't like Elon Musk since he's uh, become such an unorthodox thinker in a public manner that would make them think that he is not necessarily aligned with them on every issue. Um, so I think that that certainly has drawn a fair bit of blowback where people want the, the platform to fail, uh, undoubtedly so. And then, you know, you see some of the changes that Elon's making, and there are certainly some, uh, you know, things that would be cause for concern for some folks. And that's why you're seeing some people go and leave uh, over to Mastodon or, or other exploring other options as well. Um, you know, I think that at the end of the day, though, the notion that Twitter is going to just die, uh, you know, overnight, that's, that's well overblown. I think that if you're talking about a company dying, like I look at Meta, um, and I think that their long-term prospects don't look great. And that's because they have a very difficult time right now of attracting young people to their platform in a profitable manner. And if you're Twitter, the problem isn't necessarily that. The problem is how are you going to go and attract users to your platform and then attract ad revenue to your platform since so many of these platforms are driven by ad revenue? Um you know, how do you go and deliver that value to both sides of the equation while also maintaining your goal if you're Elon Musk of promoting more more speech online? Um, unsurprisingly, it doesn't seem like too many people actually would like that goal, uh, which puts them in conflict in some ways. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it all transpires. But I think that the, the writing Twitter off uh, aspect of all this is just, it's loony. It's insane to me. I don't think this company is dying tomorrow. I do think that it's a company that, um, you know, will go and, hopefully it can set itself on the right track in the long run once Elon 
uh, identifies that CEO for himself to go and execute his vision for the company. Yeah, James Janowski. Here's the problem with the Twitter story as I, I see it. And I've got my strong thought. Look, we've talked about we've done whole episodes of still Elon, you and me together. Mm-hmm. I have my strong thoughts on Elon, but there's really two parts to the Twitter story because the truth is the average user on Twitter isn't noticing much of a difference right now on the content side of it. Now, I know because I can read the business side. I know this is a horrible business deal. He way overpaid for it. He's way over leveraged. He's got a lot of things to do, all the Tesla stock. We could delve into all that. So I also understand the business side of it. But there's no way in the way we do things when we write an op-ed or we do a media hit to bridge those two things into one soundbite. It's not possible. (laughs) And that's the part of the problem with the story. And then you've got the Elon thing on top of it, which he's just a huge personality who does whatever he wants to do because he's rich and famous and everybody tells him what a genius he is and he has no guardrails. That's the third part of that story. Is that a fair way to parse it out? Is like that's why people have a hard time getting to the to what's actually going on with that. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of hard because if you're a daily user, like, and it is not an unfair assessment, like, um, you know, his former director of uh, of security, right, Yol. Um, was actually going over that in a New York Times op-ed where he was talking about how Elon empowered his team to go and take more action on content. Uh, So in some ways, they actually reduced the amount of bad things that you would see on Twitter under Elon Musk's tenure, despite all of his talk about wanting more speech and and everything else. Um, So there's actually, I think, a little bit of a disparity here between what it's being characterized as versus what the reality is on the ground with the actual platform itself. Um, so it's easy to go and make those judgments. But we see that every single time, just like when it was originally announced that he was going to go on my Twitter, all of a sudden conservatives saw upticks in their follower counts and, you know, more engagement on their posts. And they're like, oh, Twitter's done something different. And the reality is, is that it's been the same thing it's been the whole time. Uh, just more people choose to, you know, leverage the platform in a different way all of a sudden uh, because of expected differences in the future. Um, so I think that it, it presents a very interesting conversation to your point about Elon, you know. He basically is the new Donald Trump of Twitter. The man is, he's a lightning rod to to any kind of conversation with anything he says. The second that he presses tweet, he's going to go and get everybody on either side of the equation just jumping right on in. And that also makes it very difficult from a business perspective because it's like the man is literally his own worst headache in that instance. Um, You know, now he reinstated Donald Trump last night and it was just, by a simple poll. And unsurprisingly, there are a lot of people who are happy about that. There are a lot of people who are very angry about that. Yeah, he was going to do that anyway. The poll was the cover for it, but we'll we'll parse that out. Some. <laughs> also, he happens to you know reinstate Trump right as Tesla has to do a massive recall, but I'm sure that was coincidental, Elon. But uh, James Zernowski is always great with this stuff. Here, here's where I'm at on the Elon stuff. And again, I'm not unbiased because I got my issues with the man. I think this was inevitable. We even talked about this back during the very long run up to him purchasing. I think the puppy caught the truck and now the puppy's got to learn how to drop stick. When you take over a company like that, especially if you've never done a tech heavy social media, look, engineers run those companies because they have to, because you got a platform to run. We knew there was going to be a learning curve. So Elon, it's louder and messier because he won't stop talking about it. He won't just go away and fix it. There's a large learning curve. I think we're just going to be in a period where he either gets bored with it or he appoints somebody and steps back from the day to day because he's not going to do this forever. He can't. Nobody can. He's, he's, he's not going to do it. I think that's why I'm talking about is just kind of let this phase of Twitter go through and then we'll see what Twitter would be. I think this goes another, you know, maybe I said Christmas is where I put the over under. I think this goes a little while and then it'll go back to running like a normal company as 
Elon steps back and they kind of do whatever they his vision is going forward, I think then you panic. Right now, I don't think anybody really knows. I don't think Elon Musk knows. I don't think Twitter knows. I think this thing's just going to have to play out now that he put all this money into it. Is that a fair way to put it? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I think I'll take the over on Christmas and expect that if he's going to go and do the change at CEO, it'll be a 2023 move. I think right now it's his plaything, um, and he's trying to go and move fast and break things in the traditional Silicon Valley way. Um, unfortunately, to your point, it's a steep learning curve because Twitter actually did a lot of things for a reason, like the blue check system was there for a reason. Um, and him trying to democratize the blue check, while it sounds nice in theory, because of the way that it was deployed in the past, it's viewed as a trust system. So if all of a sudden an Eli Lilly, you know, uh, fake account pops up with a blue check on it saying that we're going to give away insulin for free, uh, even though, you know, he's decided to democratize the blue check, it does create a problem uh, because, you know, people are associating blue check with trust. So that's something that has to adjust over time. So I think that, you know, ultimately he will go and appoint somebody for the company. That's what was always in the best interest of the company. And then it also goes and puts him like a degree removed from everything, too, Um, because right now I think that he gets extra levels of scrutiny applied to him because of the fact that he's actively tweeting and being very aggressive um, in terms of some of his replies. Like, I mean, he's gone after sitting senators like Ed Markey, uh, which is kind of interesting like you know um and not the guy you want to go over either because ed markey is not a social media center he's a nuts and bolts senator that actually knows how the mechanisms work that's not the fight i would have picked if i was elon just to be frank yeah and and ed markey had no problem and and not that i'm fond of it but ed markey had no problem being like do you like do you really want to go and uh you know do this with like a sitting senator uh you know, lots of people were very quick to point out that he sits on very key uh, committees that Elon has business interests in. Um, so as to whether or not that that's like the wisest thing in the world uh, is a separate question altogether. Uh, but, you know, again, that's Elon being a lightning rod at his finest. He, he really does not seemingly care, despite the fact that he's, you know, got billions of dollars tied up uh, with some of these things. And, and senators can certainly be a, a legitimate threat to that. Um at the end of the day, like I said, I think Twitter will go and be fine. It's something that you have to let play out in the long run. So I've done a lot of media hits, as you've noted, on on Elon Musk and Twitter lately. And the reality is, is that like one of the questions I get asked is like, you know, what what do you think the long term future is there? Like, do you think it'll be around? Do you think it'll die? I'm like, it's a little unfair to judge it at this point. It's way too soon. You need to go. It's not going to die like in a month. It's going to if it's going to die, it's going to take at least six months, a year, if not longer. Um, cause Elon's not just going to go and throw in the towel after 30, 45 days. Like, you know, he's already talked about potentially doing a chapter 11 restructure if he needs to. Um, but he's already lost so much of the workforce. So he's, he's done some cost savings that way too. So I think that there's a lot of things that he can do to make this right. If he wants the company to survive in the long term, And I think that he genuinely does want that to be the case. So we'll have to see is what I ultimately think on, on Elon and all of this. James Janowski, I've got to ask you about it because it's it's a bubbling story that we're going to be hearing about for a while. It happened right as the election happened. I think buried it a little bit more. The FTX mess. I don't want to get into the crypto coin side of it so much yeah. because everybody has their preconceived notions on that. 
they filed this as a bankruptcy. Mm. Now, just quick background. Bankruptcy is a very specific legal action, especially when it comes to a major corporation. I think this thing goes criminal really, really fast because, and I've look, I've personally been through a bankruptcy. I've done it. I've talked to a couple of our lawyer friends. Like, there's not it. They their paperwork was so sloppy. They can't even do the bankruptcy. Is what I'm hearing from people that know. That's how bad this. People are like, well, is this like Enron? I'm like, no. This is multitudes worse than Enron. Enron had records. There's not even records for most of this stuff. Just for people who don't follow that space, because it is still a niche space as much as our Bitcoin friends want to be. I don't think people realize how explosive this story is going to be because this touches governments. This touches celebrities. This thing's going to get really, really ugly. And I think it gets in criminal court sooner rather than later because the bankruptcy court's not going to be able to move forward here. Yeah. And I think that this is a case where like the technology and the fact that it was so niche um, kind of covered up what was already existing bad, you know, behavior from these actors at FTX. Uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with your assessment that it will turn criminal a lot faster. And to your point of it being worse than Enron, the guy who's running the bankruptcy for FTX was the guy who managed the Enron bankruptcy. And he was like, this particular one with FTX is the worst I've ever seen in my career, uh, which would include Enron, which is kind of like a crazy thing to think about. Uh, that's something that can go on top of that. But they were so alarmingly bad, to your point about not really having any discernible documents tracking customer money. Uh, their expense report system was kind of interesting where it's like, hey, just submit it and then it'll get approved or denied via emoji. Uh, that sounds a little interesting. Uh, you know, he had a personal loan given out to him by Alameda Research for a billion dollars. This is the CEO of FTX, Sam Berkman Freed. Uh, and and then, they were dating. Let's get that out of the way. Yes. And, and the, the person who was running Alameda was dating him. Uh, and then on top of that, his chief engineer got another half billion dollar personal loan to like the kind of stuff that happened here was already criminal behavior at, at the best case scenario. What you could argue is that it's gross incompetence of the likes of which we have never seen before. And that's your best case scenario. But realistically speaking, I do think that there was some legitimate fraud uh, that was engaged in here. And those are those are already existing laws. And the problem is that because crypto's niche, um, the education gap meant that people were not quick enough to understand what exactly the guy was doing and created a whole set of other problems here. So I think that that's where you need to focus looking forward. It's not about regulating crypto. It's about going and educating lawmakers, regulators, staffers about what crypto is, what crypto is not, what these different vehicles are. Um, so that way we can avoid what XTF is because the the rise and fall of FTX in the span of a few years time is something that's quite crazy. And in terms of the fraud, it's the largest financial scandal that we've had in the United States basically since Bernie Madoff. And that's kind of crazy. Um, you know, I it's it's wild every single day uh, that this story continues to develop. And it's something that we'll have to continue monitoring looking forward. Yeah. James Arnowski. All right. You, you pay way closer attention to this stuff, so I don't have to. I can just ask you about it. Give us two or three things that aren't Elon and not Facebook and not politically related. What's some tech stuff coming down the pike here as we start looking towards 2023? A lot of developments going on. What's one or two things you're really keeping an eye on as stuff that could be really important folks should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think the crypto side is impossible to ignore just because uh, of that situation with FTX. It, it puts a lot of extra scrutiny on it. Um, so, you know, you've already seen like the New York Fed go and announce a pilot CBDC program. So that's something, a central bank digital currency. Um, 
So that's something that will be interesting to see how that continues to unfold and what the results of that pilot are and what that means in terms of congressional action, if anything. Um, and in general, I think, you know, the other big one that we'll, we'll see talked about moving forward in 2023 is like kids and being online uh, and their relationship with technology. That'll be one of the other big things as well. And then the one that I'm personally always very excited about that I think people should always keep an eye on um, is just our interactions with space um, in general. Like this year, we had the rocket uh, launched out of asteroid to see whether or not we could go and, and force the asteroid to move off of its you know projected path, um, you know, as like a simulation in the event that you had like one of those disaster situations of an asteroid coming to kill Earth or something. Um and like, you know, that that's actually really fascinating stuff. And as we start looking at how we can get into space more, I think that that's actually very exciting and might actually be a positive thing. I think it'll get us to shift off of the focus on big tech so much and let us go and engage in our inner nerd of uh, wanting to go and, you know, be Star Trek, the final frontier and exploring space again and wanting to engage in, you know, asteroid mining and other kinds of cool technologies. Um, so I'm personally excited about that one the most, but that's just me being a nerd at heart. Yeah, we got to get you with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, our space guy, because he 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 just keeps says like, oh, this is the most fascinating time ever in the history of space flight. Like, we're just not appreciating it. We just did an episode on that about a week ago. Uh, James Arnowski, you always bring good information. You make sure to use small words so I understand it really well, even though you're one of these really super smart guys, and I appreciate that. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Yeah, so you can always go and follow me on Twitter at JamesCZ19. Uh, and then you can go and see my work at the Young Voices website, which is www.young-voices.com. And um, I have a personal website at jamesjanowski.com too, where you can go and check out all the stuff that I'm doing. So uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, he's so good now that at youngvoices.org, he's actually on the top banner now. Congratulations. You got a bump, my friend. <laughs> and uh, we'll have you on lots because technology is just, look, that's the fastest growing covered journalism beat there is. I just read about the other day. So we'll keep talking about it. You do great work. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, she's back. Been a minute since she's been here, but we always enjoy talking to Leslie Corbley. She's another one of these great young voices contributors we have. She works for uh, Libertas or Libertas. You say it differently than I do because you're smarter than me and went to college and all them sorts of things. So you can explain it to the folks. We're going to talk a little bit about big tech and regulation today. Leslie, great to see you again. Thanks so much for having me back on. Oh, anytime. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I think we need to do a little background here because... Tech has become like a lot of things in culture and politics. It's become real buzzword heavy. Everybody just, oh, Facebook's doing this. And Twitter, of course, Twitter's eating everything up right now. There's some background we got to get through here. This particular lawsuit, this NCLA lawsuit, New Civil Liberties Alliance that we're going to be working with, you've wrote about it in Daily Caller. Read her whole piece. We're going to link to it. A lot of links in there, too. Make sure you read all the links. This lawsuit's dealing mostly with Facebook, though. When we're dealing with regulation, especially Facebook, who is spending tens of millions of dollars of legislation, 
what's the background that's led up to this lawsuit to where you're touching on? Because before we deal with the lawsuit, we got to know the groundwork of why there's a lawsuit and why there's a regulation problem in the first place, right? Sure. So this lawsuit, NCLA joined the lawsuit in August. It was initially filed by two attorney generals um, in Missouri and Louisiana. So the actual title of the lawsuit is Missouri v. Uh, Biden, I believe. So that's where you you see these attorney generals were concerned with uh, whether the federal government was essentially coercing private companies into making content moderation policies that were favorable to the government and the kind of information that the government wanted to flow to the public. So it stems from um, from those those issues that had arisen out of you know, COVID disputes regarding what is and is not misinformation, what should or should not be shared. Uh, and it's a, the lawsuit's attempting to sort of uncover and unpack the relationship between the federal government and various te- technological companies, particularly Facebook. Yeah, in your piece, you kind of set it up this way. You said, the case will answer an important policy question. I'm quoting from your piece in the caller. To what extent are the content moderation decisions social media companies have made over the last several years influenced by the threat of government action? Now, let's do just a little bit of background because people lose their mind when they talk about social media and we get stuck in the moment. Every company in America has decision-making based on government regulation because that's just, you have to or you're not going to be in business very long, whether you're you know a fast food joint or an oil change place or a medical company or whatever. Your whole business is regulated to some extent by the government. So, of course, you think about it. And, of course, the really big government agencies and the big businesses, they communicate with each other because you're talking about millions and billions of tax dollars and millions and billions of profit and loss if you screw this stuff up. So just communicating is not malfeasance in and of itself. It's good business practice, good governmental practice, because you don't want the government just swinging the hammer. You want them warning people like do. So that gets us to this lawsuit, though. We don't have a real good, hard, fast, defined lines here on that kind of communication, do we? And that's kind of the base issue here because social media, this was a disruptor. This changed how government and people and businesses communicated. And those blurred lines is where this lawsuit is trying to deal with. Is that a fair way to kind of summarize all this? It is. Uh, it's it's troubling in the sense that we don't have, like you said, there are not clear, there's not a clear delineation of what is appropriate communication between government actors and state or sorry state and or government actors and corporate actors as it relates to the creation of their uh content moderation policies and the reason that's so important is because most information now flows through large uh companies um that host have platforms on the internet. Now, whether or not, say, Facebook or Twitter is going to end up dominating for the next 10 to 15 years, I don't know. But what's more relevant is that whoever were to take that place, let's say, is going to have a similar role. Uh, So it's the roles and the relationships that uh, concern me more than, you know, the particular company. Right. It's it's to yeah. what extent can government essentially a report on Cato, by the way, I linked to that I think is really important, talks about this in terms of what's called job owning, which would be the government using its regulatory power to effectively coerce companies into creating policies they may not otherwise have chosen to create, uh, so on and so forth. And what this really, in my opinion, uh, 
highlights is the blurred lines between our public and private sectors across the economy. And that's really troubling because you don't want the government to have such a heavy-handed role in corporate decision-making, and yet that's exactly what you see. As, as you mentioned, it makes rational sense for these companies to be concerned with what government um, may or may not do in relation to their regulatory power over those companies. So that's, I think, the, the base level concern as well is what do we do to ensure that companies can act of their own volition without uh, undue influence from, from uh, government actors? Yeah, Leslie Corbley joining us. Now, what brought a lot of this to a head, like a lot of things right now, is we're still trying to figure out how we reacted, what we did, and how everybody reacted to the COVID situation. This is, of course, a situation where you're trying, the government need, let, let's just be fair, the government needed to get mass amounts of information to everybody as fast as possible because it's a public health issue. Social media is the most immediate, most directed people method we've ever seen in the history of humankind. And that's where all the trouble started because now you get into, well, what's misinformation, what's not, not misinformation. And to be fair to the tech companies, yeah, they're they're doing it, but they're also worried about the government coming in and either you know regulating them or suing them or something if they get it wrong because they don't know the rules either. The government didn't know the rules either. We've talked to some of our scientist friends like Dr. Michael Siegel. Like we, one thing we learned was public health officials and government officials really don't know how to talk to common people, especially when tweeting at them or Facebook posting at them. This turned into a big hot mess. However. It showed going forward when we need to get information to people, it's got to go through social media. So how do we handle that? And that's what really brought this whole thing to a head. Yes, uh, the COVID crisis certainly is really the backdrop of this lawsuit. Uh, it's hard for me to fathom that it would have come to the place we're at now without the uh, decisions that were made during that time period. And it's important, I do think, for listeners to understand that this lawsuit peers behind um sort of the veil, so to speak, of these uh, communications between government and tech companies, but it does so over a course of years. So some of the events and uh, information that came out of this lawsuit occurred before Biden took office. So this is not necessarily a, um, a partisan issue of one administration taking the reins and doing something completely different than the other administration was was doing prior, which realistically isn't how governance works. You have a lot of you know, bureaucracies are fairly entrenched at a certain point and they have interests more or less of their own that continue to roll over from administration to administration. And as you mentioned, in the context of public health, it is understandable that government wanted to get information out as quickly as possible and also that they wanted that to be accurate. Uh, the same for technolo technological companies. The problem comes from, from essentially trying is inserting government into a position where they're attempting to determine what is and is not true and what what information people can and cannot access. So it touches on a lot of issues that frankly aren't going to go away anytime soon, not just who determines what's true, to what extent should government be involved in content moderation policies of technological companies, but other things coming down the pike, which would be how are algorithms to be uh, regulated. You know, the FTC, for instance, wants to have a heavy hand in regulating the in regulating what algorithms can and cannot do. And then, of course, there's separate um, ethical issues for companies to determine of what should they be willing to discuss with government actors and what should they be willing to, to say, well, no, we're really not going to have that conversation or no, we're not willing to 
uh, engage in this line of inquiry. And it becomes really messy and really muddled because of the regulatory landscape. So with Facebook in particular, now Meta, they've had in the past a lot of threats of antitrust lawsuits from the government. And so you're looking at companies and in the case of Facebook or other large technological companies that have interactions with various government agencies that have authority over them. So if they say here from the White House and are, are concerned maybe with a, a antitrust lawsuit, they're going to interpret all of the incoming information from the um, executive branch, you know, as sort of an entity, right? They're not going to separate out the, the communication per se on the antitrust side from the White House because to some degree it's it's all the same branch of government, right? Leslie Corby joining us. Let's go to the legal aspect of this real quick. There's terminology in here that has to be hashed out legally because when you go to something like a lawsuit, tort law, things like this, terminology matters. And it matters a lot because you're trying to discern intent from terminology. You spend, you know, two paragraphs worth of time on here just on some terminology. Just listen to some of these words and you understand how the court gets turned up. You know, you just mentioned one of them, algorithms. You got to define what an algorithm is. Misinformation. Well, what does that mean? Because that means something different. You know, one person's misinformation is another person's lies. Another person's I'm living my truth, right? Look at some of these other terms you point out. These are quotes. Turned up the heat. Well, what does that mean? What's the difference between a quote request and quote a threat from the government? Because we all know when the IRS requests your taxes, yeah, it's a request, but it's also a threat. Because if you don't do it, everybody knows what happened. We're laughing about it. But in a court of law, this is exactly what lawsuits and torts, and this is what it is. You have to define what these is, discern intent, and that's kind of the heart of these lawsuits. This is where the far-reaching effects come from, though, is if we get a legal definition of what they can and can't do with an algorithm, if we get a legal definition of misinformation, that's the core part of this that doesn't get the headlines, but legally, that's where the action is. Yes, it's it's a really troubling landscape to look at just long-term from for the for one of the, for the sheer fact that it has such far reaching effects right when you're looking at these issues as well i think it's important sometimes to say, take a step back and ask yourself basic questions so for instance what would the public response have been if back in 2000 or 2002 you know go back 10 15 20 years ago it had been found that the government was was telling a cable provider you should not allow certain content on the air, right? I think that would have been a pretty huge story. And you have a fairly analogous situation happening here, which is they're telling a platform, you know, Facebook or Twitter or these other tech companies, they essentially platform different content providers. That's functionally what they're doing, right? Every, it's just that they have many, many more content providers, so to speak, than say a cable station ever would have. but that's functionally what's happening is the government was attempting to say, you really need to not allow this on the air, right? You need to, you need to, alg- you need to somehow ensure that certain types of messages are downplayed. And there's, again, the, the logic to that comes into play as far as the speed with which information travels across the internet. It's not the same um, as 
the speed with which something could have traveled across even cable news back in 1980, right? It's a, it's a different beast as far as speed uh, and as far as the ability of anyone to put any information out into the public sphere. That being said, this problem is not going away. And I think there are deep should be deep concerns with what happens when government becomes the one coming in from on high to sort of arbitrate what is and is not true, right? Is this going to make the problem better or worse? I would, I would argue it makes it worse. As to what those lines specifically look like, as to what constitutes a request versus a threat, that's going to be difficult to tease out. It's going to be very hard to tease out because you're dealing with, like you said, um, situations where it makes sense for these two entities to be in contact on some level. Uh, but I think that there is a degree of collaboration that becomes highly disturbing from a perspective of maintaining uh, civil liberties, uh, free speech, and the type of climate for, for freedom to flourish that we've been accustomed to here in America. Right. Leslie Corby joining us. This goes let's, that was the legal details. Let's zoom back out big picture to what this case is going to eventually be about, even if it's not this case, the next case or the case after that, because this is going to keep happening in courts. This is a the free speech thing. Despite what Facebook and Twitter tells you, private companies are not you know subject to the First Amendment. The big question here is the more government is in charge of a communication thing, the more the First Amendment does apply, though, whereas before you clicking that little content box and agreeing to terms of service, that changes things. The more the government's involved, the more the First Amendment applies, and the First Amendment applying to social media would solve three problems, and it would create 14 more. That's kind of where this is all headed at some point, is that if the government is in charge of a media platform, the First Amendment applies. If they don't, it doesn't. That's the core constitutional issue here, yeah. Absolutely. It's to what extent it's essentially the the law. The question of the lawsuit is. Does the collaboration between government and the technology companies amount to what would be called state action? Uh, some would obviously argue that it does. Some would argue it does not. The right now, as the current the current state of the of the doctrine of state action is very difficult for plaintiffs to to win on on those on the grounds that something amounts to state action. Those are difficult lawsuits to mount and win. That being said, there clearly has to be a line somewhere <laughs> um, to determine, you know, the, the state is in fact as passing off its its power to a government act to a corporate actor, right? And allowing or sort of forcing a corporate actor to engage in conduct that the government cannot constitutionally engage in itself. So in some ways, uh sort of deputizing a, a company to engage in conduct that would otherwise violate the Constitution. So again, the whether or not this, this passes muster in a court of law is to be determined, uh, but it does, the lawsuit is ongoing. Uh, and right now, as it stands, individuals, well, government officials, not just individuals, but government officials such as Dr. Fauci will be deposed, um, which will bring more information to light and hopefully shed light on the the nature of this relationship and maybe how likely the lawsuit is to fare moving forward. Yeah, this is going to be messy no matter what. Give us the timeline, though, for folks who want to keep up with this issue. I know they're waiting on depositions. There's going to be a court ruling on um, standing here. 
give folks a little bit of a timeline if they want to keep up with this case and what's coming next. Sure, the depositions appear to be uh, moving forward, likely to occur this month. I know there was a, the government had sought to halt these depositions on November 2nd, appealing the ruling of the judge. That was um, denied, so these depositions will move forward. Uh, I'll be continuing to follow this story, so to the extent that there's more information that comes out, I will certainly be uh, highlighting that on my on my social media feeds and uh, through articles and things of that nature, because this is a very, in my view, a very, very important um, development. And I think all eyes should be on this lawsuit to see what uh, what happens here and what that means going forward. Yeah. And, and in the bigger picture, what's really happening is, is social media happened before we had any case law to deal with it. So all the case law doesn't really apply to it real neatly because it's mostly for you know, things like, you know, the old AT&T laws for Ma Bell. That's the kind of stuff they're trying to force onto this, and it just doesn't work. So we're building the case law for what these laws are going to look like in the future, and it's very important stuff. That means we're going to have to have you back and talk about it more, which we'll happily do because we love having you on. Uh, Leslie Cordley, let people know until we do that how they can keep up with you, how they can keep up with the story, like you just said, your social media, your young voices, and everything else you got going on. Uh, you're a professional mover and shaker. You got some stuff coming up. Let folks know all about it. Sure. Thanks so much. I'm always happy to always happy to chat. So uh, you can follow me on at Corbley Leslie. That's my Twitter handle. I also have a website, just lesliecorbley.com. It's real easy. I post all of my content there. It houses every article, papers I write, um, media appearances. Everything's there for folks to follow along. Those are two major uh, platforms I use. I'm also, of course, on Libertas, libertas.org. They publish all my work. I publish articles for them uh, and do a lot of a lot of great work there. You can also um, follow me. Those would probably be the three main platforms to follow me on right now. Um, and of course, follow Libertas for other uh, fantastic content. And uh, as always, I appreciate being on to chat with you. And uh, Young Voices has been uh, phenomenal to work with. Yeah, they really have been. I've always enjoyed it. We appreciate your time. We're going to link to all this. Again, this piece has got a lot of links in the piece that you got to go through and read to kind of get the full context on this stuff. Do your homework, folks. Uh, we'll link to it. Make sure you read the whole thing. Follow her on social media, Leslie Corbley. We always appreciate the time, and thank you so much. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. That'll do it for Hertel. Remember, we'd love to hear from you. Hertel Show on the gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, Hertel Show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Always happy. This doesn't work if you're not listening. So wherever you and yours are, thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you again on Hertel, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll see you real soon. Right back here for more Hertel. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la máquina.